is a blow Shoots up through the stony ground There's no room No space to win in this town You're out of luck And the reason that you had to care The traffic is stuck And you're not moving anywhere You thought you found a friend To take you out of this place Someone you could lend a hand In return for grace It's a beautiful Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Little Bill. Little Bill. That's my rap name. Oh, wow. Little, I didn't see Little Bill coming. All right. Yeah. Like a Little Bill. L-I-L. Yeah. Yeah. That was what my... Little is too... It's a little too pronounced for no, most. No, I will. I, little Bill. I, I meant, to, meant to mumble that. You need L-I-L-B-I-L. Little yeah. Bill. Just six... Just six... Little Bill. That could be it. I like that. All six right. uh, characters. And you could tweet that like 140 characters. Right, let me do the math. Don't help me. Don't help me. Two... You could 20, 20, you could treat that like 20, more than 20 times. That's right. That's good. So we're going to talk about the true, the good, and the beautiful. And to start us off, we are going to have Bill's rap debut. Lil Bill. Lil Bill. Lil Bill. Lil Bill's rap debut. So with no further ado, I bring you Lil Bill. Hit it, Bill. God made beauty for us to see. God gave us good for us to be. God teaches truth for us to know. How he always loves us so. My beat may come from the Greeks, but my rap and my rhyme are truly divine. Yeah. Bill, for the first time on this podcast, I am speechless. <laughs> well, and I'd like to dedicate that to the group that that was written for, uh, the Community Christian Day School at Feasterville Community Reformed Church. That's my preschool chapel. And uh, we're talking about the uh, beauty, the good, and the true, or the true, the good, and the beauty, whichever order you want. And uh, so this was part of what I did to help them learn. So there we go. There we have it, folks. That little Bill will be Bill, touring yeah, the country. Right. So, you know, he's, new, uh, you know he, we're trying to bring this classical education up. And He's looking to tour Camp Hill. So if any of our listeners are in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, and would like Bill to come play like an Assembly of God church. Right. Or yeah, going back a to VF, my roots. VFW. Yeah, VFW. I would be happy to do that. The Owls. Eternal Order of the Owls. They're always fun. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bill, after that aesthetic contribution... <laughs> yeah, because I thought this was about aesthetics, so I thought I'd give my own little little thing here. All right. So, the true, the good, and the beautiful, and why any of them matter. Well, and I think uh, given what's been going on in the political uh, world, and uh, again, some of you enjoyed our uh, and responded to our post-debate uh, <laughs> post-debate podcast last night, uh, as in words of Michelle Obama, when, when, when they go low, we go high. So that's why we, uh, that's why we decided to go with this subject. I thought it was when they go low, we get high. But. Uh, well, that might, have, might be by, by the third debate, we may need to do that. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's, yeah. Thank you for everybody for listening and, we, and for comments on our Facebook Live and it's a platform we're going to experiment with more as we learn what we're doing. Uh, but there's Which this, never stopped us before. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's just, <laughs> so a, a 2013 study of Chinese mini-blogging network Weibo, uh, which is sort of like Twitter, but it, it's got twice as many users, found that they looked at 70 million Weibo tweets over a six-month period, sorting them by anger, joy, sadness, and disgust. 
Rage was the emotion most likely to spread across social media with one angry post powerful and persuasive enough to negatively influence a follower of a follower of a follower. There you go. In Mark Galley's words uh, from Christianity Today, in other words, that angry tweet of yours has the potential of fomenting rage to the third degree. Yeah. Literally. Yeah, that's, that's wow. So that's kind of the sins being visited upon the third and fourth and fifth degree as opposed to generations. The tweet, it like tweets, yeah, it's like the tweets, spawning of, children. This Leviticus curse of the tweet. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah that, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, I think you saw that, you see that in our political culture, you see oh, yeah. it in yeah. the kind of entertainment weekly culture where the shaming and the kind of gaslighting of everybody. Yeah, it, it, I think that, there, that somehow like rage and anger and... And my favorite is the now... the the holy right of the denouncement. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Denouncing is, yeah. Everybody, you got to be a denouncer. Like, you can't just not support something. You have to denounce it. Yeah. I will not denounce Tic Tacs. Way to, way to, way to go. Way I'm to sticking hang. with my Tic Tacs. Way to hang with that. So, um, the idea that there are transcendentals um, that lead us to higher places um, is, an, is an idea that uh, is in the pre-Socratics. It's an old idea that's it's kind of at part of the foundation of what is... The Western way of thinking. Do you feel like you've arrived arrived when an era is named for you, like the pre-Socratics? Like, what were we even doing before Socrates? We were just the pre-Socratics. Yeah. Well, you know, that's good. I mean, Jesus gets to determine time. Um, at, least, <laughs> at least Socrates got to uh, determine everybody that came before him. He got that. Yeah. For certain. So maybe it would be good, uh, be helpful for a brief defining of what we mean about these transcendentals and, and where their place is, both, I guess, in philosophy, but uh, there's really a, a lot of kind of reemergence of an interest in them in theology as well. Yeah, I mean, if Plato, right, thought that the good, the true, and the beautiful were, virtu- were like the cardinal virtues, I mean, these are things, part of their singular status is their, their ends pursued for their own sake, that they're not that they're not means to other ends, but like, you know, you, you might, uh, you might study color patterns for beauty, right? So your discipline of learning color patterns serves the interest of beauty, but there, but once you get to beauty, there's nothing beyond, your beauty right. is not for something else generally. Uh, you know, it's likewise, Plato thinks, at least if you're enlightened, have a sense of wisdom, likewise with goodness and with truth, these things are pursued for their own ends, and they're the sort of pinnacle of, you know, they're the building blocks of the good life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one would be hard-pressed to describe a state of happiness apart from one or not all three of us. I bet you Kim Kardashian could do it. Maybe she could. Yeah, so maybe she could. Lil Bill. <laughs> that was there. Lil Bill, everybody. Kim, yeah, Kim Kardashian. Thank you. I'll be uh, three shows tomorrow. Thank you very much. I'm surprised, by the way, that those... That those she was she had a burglary incident like yeah alleged alleged burglary I'm surprised that like that would be possible she's usually so uh, surreptitious about her whereabouths and inconspicuous <laughs> and inconspicuous seems, how would you know there seems where always, she is there seems to always be at least a crowd around her yeah I know yeah but anyway if it really happened and I have no reason to believe it didn't uh, regardless of who she is it's it's a bad thing. I kind of, I, I, I'm not a Kardashian hater. I'm not a, I, I, I find, I, I don't know, they're an interesting group. Yeah, well, that's, that, that part is true. So we have these ideas that these are the things that, you know, they're not reducible. And so um, this idea of, and one of the interesting ones, probably uh, the neglected one in, in a lot of our contemporary thinking in theology would be beauty, although there are a lot of people trying to talk about that. And, and this idea of that, um, 
there's this kind of objective truth to beauty that was hard to define it. I mean, it's a phenomena that is universally experienced, but it's it's a hard one to describe. It is, I think. But I think you're right. It is the. I think. I think when it disappears, generally religion beca- gets reduced to something like ideology. You know, it it can become either more bond or club to beat someone with, or it becomes sort of just you know something that lacks the existential power to meet human longing in deep and significant and real ways. Yeah, you know, and I think that was part of the trouble, if you would, the Protestant mistake. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, in in Calvin, there was this kind of mystical starkness that, you know, you could almost read Calvin, and and some people do, um, can read him almost as this kind of almost pure mystical God, a totally transcendent God. And so that stripping away all the distractions is kind of one of the highest ways of contemplation. The trouble is, is this, the tradition couldn't sustain that. So instead you get bad hymns and ugly buildings. Yeah, I don't know if it's even Protestant. in the Because like, I was just reading something, like Von Balthasar, when he was studying uh, as a Jesuit novice in the 30s, he was stuffing his ears he would go to lecture and stuff his ears and read Augustine and the Fathers. He's like, look, I find Aquinas interesting enough, but what they're doing with Aquinas is just horrible, dreadful right, and boring. Right. And so I think there's something, I, I, I don't, I, I mean, I think there are obviously some things in certain stripes of Protestantism that would de-emphasize certain things, at least sensory things like smells and bells, at least some strands of it. But I don't know. I think that, that, that this is a universal, the, the, the tendency to kind of, for religion to be moribund and lack connection with the imagination and what's deep in human longing is, I think that that's just, it, it's pretty common. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I mean, I, I just really hate to go in, into a post Vatican II Roman Catholic church. Because particularly you hate going into like a post fifth century <laughs> no, church not, I mean, on some level. I like the Renaissance a lot. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, Which I want to have Renaissance <laughs> going back to. Right? So, that's true. Okay. Right. But, you know, I, but the whole, I think part of it, you walk into a building and, and I think of this one particular monastery that has a very lovely dynamic worship and wonderful spirituality, but there's no transcendence in the architecture. They've lost transcendence. I mean, many of us Protestants, and particularly those of us who grew up low church evangelicals, our attraction to liturgy and our attraction to architecture and things is kind of a corrective to what we didn't have. Now, I, I'm thankful for what I did have, but there's nothing more discouraging when you say, okay, great, I'm going to get to go to this wonderful liturgical, worshipful service, and you walk into a building that is just the worst of Protestantism with a crucifix. You know, that's kind of what, that's, and I think that to me, it, it may even be just kind of the natural way that the church and its architecture has reflected the general trend of Western society. So it may not even be Protestant or Catholic. It may just be us buying into where the whole ethos of the culture is gone. There is a, a passage in Love Alone is Credible by Von Balthasar, which I love. It's one of my favorite little books. And then he says this. He says this. Neither religious philosophy nor existence can provide the criterion for the genuineness of Christianity. In philosophy, man discovers what is humanly knowable about the depths of being. In existence, man lives out what is humanly livable. But Christianity disappears the moment it allows itself to be dissolved into a transcendental precondition of human self-understanding in thinking or living, knowledge or deed. Hmm. And I think that that is utterly true. I think that 
that when religion gets reduced to, or theology gets reduced to propositions you know, or something that is deeply embedded in depth psychology, or in uh, a way of life or an ethical vision, the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. I think the, there certainly has been a tendency over the last three centuries to reduce religion to ethics. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's been part of the, part of the death of that, those branches of religion that embrace that. I mean, uh, whether it be a kind of enlightened liberalism or a, um, you know, rigid fundamentalism. To, yeah. It's funny because some sociologists argue the rise of conservative evangelicalism was because that in the main line in the early 60s, when it had its most captive audience, was sort of just hitting people over the head with activist ethical stuff. Like, and there was not a lot of, uh, there was not a lot of vertical, everything was kind of horizontal. And so these churches that seemed a little more spiritually, you know, alive, you know, people flocked, some people anyway, to evangelical churches, which then did the same thing right, and made right. it into a right wing kind of. Yeah. And there have been, uh, been some of the tendencies ever. Yeah, there've been those tendencies for a long time, you know, that uh, that being a good Christian was not going to movies or you know whatever, you know, don't dance, things like that. Uh, yeah, when we get Merry Christmas back in Macy's, things are going to change. <laughs> All right, what about the truth? Yeah, we've kind of flirted around the good and the beautiful, but what about truth? Yeah, it was funny. I was talking to someone not too long ago, and they say, uh, "Sounds like you're really trying to live your truth." And I go, "No, that's precisely what I'm trying not to do." I'm trying to get away from my my own particular vantage of the truth and try to hold on to something bigger than myself. But that that's you know that's kind of a catchphrase. So how do you talk about a transcendent truth uh, in the postmodern moment? Well, it, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think von Balthasar says something like, "Beauty is what makes truth good and the good true." And I do think you know I was thinking back today about preaching and the sermons I've thought people connected with and the thing and the ones that they didn't. And I think every time I can see that, that there's an aesthetic deficiency. Like the ones I can, th- you know, I, mean, I could think of lots of them that I thought, man, it just, I don't think it was present enough for people. And it was, there's not a picture that bears witness to uh, the beauty uh, that flows from the God who, who is the source of truth and who is the good. And I think that somehow that, that's the, the hinge. I think that you know, von Balthasar in that level is credible, which is a fabulous. I mean, just I can't recommend it enough. It's not. It's 150 pages. It's a fabulous book. But he says that you know, if there is a, an analogy to what makes Christianity credible or believable, and he says, you know, it's a transcendent reality that comes from outside us, above us. So all human pictures fail. But if there's one he had to go with, it's the relationship of eros and beauty. And that what we find beautiful, we love, and what we love, we come to find beautiful. I mean, there's an inner, and we can't control it. Like, you can't control who or what you love, you can't control what you find beautiful. Like, you, so there's a spontaneous nature to it that, that captures you. You know, this is why people say, you know, Stanley Harawa says, you don't really choose a tradition, it chooses you. Because mm-hmm. it's, if it doesn't feel like it's captured you that way, it, it won't really, it, it, you, again, you'll reduce it to something that, that's uh, less gripping less mysterious, less awe-inspiring, and entrancing. And so I think that, that on some level, that, that the truth, you know, the, the, the truth has to be uh, in the form that it causes, the, 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 that speaks to the human heart's deep, deep longing. Well, and, and maybe it also helps, it helps give us words and boundaries for that longing. You know, in other yeah. words, in other words, in terms of, I mean, 
almost everyone talks that God is love. I mean, that, you know, that's kind of, we all lead with that now. And we lead with the idea that, you know, most churches talk about grace all the time. Um, often it doesn't seem to work or stick. And I think part of it is what's the proper understanding? What's the truth, if you would, at least from a Christian perspective, what have Christians meant by when they talked about God as love and God's grace and mercy? Um, you know, for instance, you, you know, Augustine is the, is a theologian of love. But when Augustine talks about love and beauty, and I think particularly in that, particularly in that powerful passage in, uh, in Confessions 10, you know, when he's talking about, you know, late I've loved you and beauty so ancient and deep, there's something really different there than sometimes what you get in sermons that, you know, God just wants to give you a hug. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, that you need a hug, but that's why God placed his image in other humans. That's why we, that's why you have the body of Christ, the church, to give you the hug. But when you're talking about the love of God, there's something very dramatic. That, I mean, for God to love the cosmos, there's a sense where that the love of God is the counterbalance to the nature of gravity and the inevitableness of the results of evil in this world. It's, it's, it's a much more powerful and radical idea. See, I don't think the problem is necessarily the, the, the idea of hug or embrace. It's, it's the way, like, I mean, I don't know. We've seen, like, sitcoms where there's hugs, and it's, you know, Seinfeld said, you know, Seinfeld and Larry David, one of the things, that, the rules they made about Seinfeld, nobody, no hugging, no learning. So, like, so, so but uh, sometimes, I mean, I heard this story, which I've used in sermons about this pastor who was, uh, his son was an addict, and right after high school, kind of was on the streets, was gone, and he, his friends played a prank on him, uh, on, his, on the father, like, and they, they said he was a pastor, and they knew he'd be, you know, prepping, it was a Saturday night, they knew, you know, it's so in the middle of the night, they know he'd be, need to sleep, or be up early or something, in the middle of the night, they pranked him. This is the police, police department, Chicago, whatever precinct. Your son's here. We need you to get him. Like he's, the father's, oh my God, he goes to the precinct. So we never heard of this kid. He goes to another, the next precinct that we never heard of this kid. So he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do here. And he went to this abandoned house, which was a lot of drugs squatting and everybody's either passed out or just completely whacked out in a, in a, um, you know, drug induced state. And he sees his son laying there and he didn't know what to, he kissed him and left. And a couple, like a month or two later, he shows up at the house for dinner and he starts showing up more and he gets clean. And like six, seven, eight months later, they're sitting there and he said, what, what was it? You know, what, what happened? He says, dad, like my friends, you know, did this cruel thing to you. And, and I, I could make out that it was you, I thought in a haze. And I, and I thought, what is he going to do? I thought you were going to kick me and you kissed me. And that's where things, you know, began to change. And I was, I remember hearing someone telling that story. And I thought that's, that is the picture of the, this feeling where the mercy comes in, in a way that is unsuspecting in a, in, a, in a way that is confounding. And yeah, the father probably, most of us would have kicked him. You know, most of us no, would have, no, I don't yeah, think that. Most, uh, you know, no, most fathers would not. Have. Okay, maybe not. But you could, I mean, people can understand. No, there would be people who would. Right. And, yeah. and maybe, or, you know, or at least we can understand why the son would want to feel kicked. Maybe that's the power. Yeah, I think, I think, maybe the power is yeah. understanding when we feel like we should be kicked. And I think that like the, the problem isn't anthropological anchors or pictures. The problem is bad anthropological anchors or pictures. I think that it's 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 j- just generally people uh, probably not attentive enough uh, to the beauty that's there that echoes right. the beauty echoes beauty's source. But that, but see, I think that's the eminent side of God's love. But that only comes with humans touching humans. I mean, I think I, I think it's important to understand. I think it is. I mean, I think God can really touch us through other people. But that's still, 
I still, what we long for is that glimpse of a city of, that's not our own. And I, and I think that eminent expression of human touching human is, is one side of the divine love that can lead us to the more transcendent one. It can be, a, we can get there by analogy. Um, but I, I still think that the analogy, what the, the real is, is so much greater than, than what's signified. And what you just signified there is one of the most, is you can, it's hard to find a more powerful grace and loving story than that. We have to remember that's only analogy and image of what truly is. Yeah. I mean, but I, other than that, I mean, that, that just, at that point though, it, everything just gets so abstract. I mean, all we have is analogy. I mean, they, like we, we don't, all that's meaningful to people is an, is, is analogy. And in fact, God comes to us, you know, I mean, God could have wired our imaginations to be infinite and he didn't, I mean, or to be able to like, like mo- we think mostly in, I mean, we, 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 need things like concrete particularity and pictures and stories and images. And I don't think we get to God or anything any other way. No, well, I, I think we need them. But I actually think, I, I think that they can be vessels for us to actually t- t- cross over. I mean, I think... Sure, right. Yeah, and I mean, I, so I'm not disagreeing with the analogy, but I, I actually think the beauty, the good, the true are all reflections of, of the one who is love itself. And, and, and they, they can lead us to glimpses in this life of that which we will see forever. Yeah, I I, I agree. I, yeah. I just think that there are like I, I don't think that the mystery of God is behind the concrete thing. It's given in and with it. Like it's not. Mm. It doesn't exist. It's like it's like the mystery isn't behind uh, the incarnate one, fully God, fully human. The mystery is in the revelation of that's where the mystery is. What is fully God? What is fully human? Well, there at the heart of the particularity is a mystery. Right. But there is still something so much greater than even that revelation that's behind it. Yeah, when you say that though, it just sounds like a footnote. It's like it's, it's like oh, there's still something so greater behind it. We got to qualify that. You know, Ibid. I mean, I, I think there is, but then the minute we speak of it, it seems like this is Bart talking to Augustine, right? Now. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, I mean, I think look at Augustine. It's all like it's all uh, rhetorical. The beauty, the rhetoric, as a man of letters, is part of how the transcendent, how the how the unknowing is 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 put into relief. Right, but I do, I think there's a real connection that's that's more than analogy. Well, I mean, a real connection, sure, in that I think people have ineffable experiences. You know, you know, Schleiermacher calls it like feeling of absolute dependence. Um, And I I think there are things like that. But again, well, and I think that that's what the things like pictures of beauty in the world, you know, they are midwives for that. Right. I think even that story, I mean, a couple number of episodes ago, uh, when you talked about, you know, uh, maybe it was in our response to uh, uh, Bart Campolo, the Bart Campolo interview, you know, there was a time where I The great to... Bart Campolo. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but there's a point where you once were lost and now you're found. And and there's a sense where there's a there's only there's a point where what actually happens words break down. Yeah, I I think that's always true. I mean, we know more than we can say. Right. And but think, but but I think that like the the answer to that isn't to study. Uh, it, it's to sit, pay more attention to particularity, not less. No, I I don't mean to pay less. I just think there's a point where um, the analogy ends and prayer begins. Sure. And that's all I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think though that the people that find the most where the analogy ends most often or frequently are people that are immersed in the analogous realities. Like I, I, I think that there's something I like that I found. 
I've been reading a lot of Robert Capon lately, and I find Capon just unbelievably <laughs> amazing. And, it, and he wrote this book, which I got for my lovely wife for Christmas. And um, he spends a whole chapter on a freaking onion. Basically, the whole chapter is what it, what's the nature of an onion? And he's mm. like, it looks like this. It's not really this. You cut it open. And, it's, mm. and he says, I'm between the onion and the parsley, therefore, I shall give the rumination of my case for paying attention. Man's real work is to look at the, the things of the world and to love them for what they are. That is, after all, what God does, and man was not made in God's image for nothing. Mm. And he says the fruits of his attention can be seen in all the arts, crafts, and sciences. And he goes on, but then he concludes that chapter like this. He says, Berate me not, therefore, for carrying on about slicing onions in a world under the sentence of nuclear overkill. <laughs> the heaviest weight on the shoulders of the earth is still the age-old idolatry by which man has cheated himself of both creator and creation. And this age is no exception. If you prefer to address yourself to grave to graver matters, well and good. Idolatry needs all the enemies it can get. <laughs> but if I choose to break images in the kitchen... I cannot be faulted. We are both good men in a day when good men are hard to find. Let us join hands and get on with our iconoclasm. There is a Russian story about an old woman whose vices were so numerous that no one could name even one of her virtues. She was slothful, spiteful, envious, deceitful, greedy, foul-mouthed, and proud. She lived by herself and in herself. She loved no one and no thing. One day a beggar came to her door. She upbraided him, abused him, and sent him away. As he left, however... She unaccountably threw an onion after him. He picked it up and ran away. In time, the woman died and was dragged down to her due reward in hell. <laughs> but just as she was about to slip over the edge of the bottomless pit, she looked up and above her, descending from the infinite distances of heaven, was a great archangel. And in his hand was an onion. Grasp this, he said. If you hold it, it will lift you up to heaven. One real thing is closer to God than all the diagrams in the world. Wow. That's, that's a beautiful story. Yeah. Talking about that onion makes me think that if we follow a good recipe uh, and we listen to the truth of that recipe, we can, we can come up with a beautiful soup. The kingdom of God is about eating and drinking. And, uh, and enjoying. Oh
Don't be 